Hello, everyone, and welcome to Know the Show, our musical theater podcast where we deep dive into classic musicals one at a time. I'm Michael Fling, the Artistic Associate at Goodspeed Musicals, and I'm thrilled to be joined by my angel of music, the one, the only, Annika Chapin, Director of Artistic Development at Signature Theater in D.C. Hello, Annika. Hi. I thought you were going to go with, like, my creepy friend who lurks in a basement. So, you know, I watched the concert, um, as we discussed, and uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber introduces Sarah Brightman as his angel of music at the end. And so I literally just watched that. So, And that's a little weird and creepy, considering they're, like, exes. We're famously not exes. But it still felt <laughs> right. <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take so, it. So with that, because we've already spoiled so much, and I as, as as if there was any doubt based on the end of the last episode, what show we were putting in the spotlight this episode, or we're getting to know this episode, both, whatever. I'm going to keep going back and forth with that terminology. Why don't you remind us of our clue for what show we'd be getting to know? Well, we said that this musical uh, has 281 candles used per performance. And of course, that would be the atmospheric, the romantic, the dark, Larry uh, Phantom of the Opera by Andrew Lloyd Webber and some other people as well, but mostly Andrew Lloyd Webber. <laughs> mostly Andrew Lloyd Webber. Um, official credits, music by Andrew Lloyd Webber, lyrics by Charles Hart, additional lyrics by Richard Stilgo, book by Richard Stilgo and Andrew Lloyd Webber based on the novel Le Phantom de l'Opera by Gaston Leroux. How did I do that? Oh, oh. That was my French. Uh, it's okay. <laughs> I did not take French. I took ASL in high school. Okay. And with that. <laughs> and Which, with that. Actually, fun fact, American ASL is very similar to French ASL. So in some ways you did take French. Sign language is a beautiful, beautiful language. I really, uh, truly encourage anybody who's interested in it, like learn it because it's a, it's a beautiful language. I, I love I love the deaf community. I'll, anyway, all right. And that will bring us to the speed test. Hudson's Florex doesn't matter. Hudson's doesn't matter. Hudson's doesn't matter. Okay. All right. So this, this is where I do my best to summarize the plot of the Phantom of the Opera in 60 seconds. I have one minute on the clock. Yeah. I, I think I think you'll be able to. I think this will be. I, I have some faith, but I who knows? Yeah. All right. Ready? Little monkey on a music box and go. Stupid. Um, okay, so um, it uh, so basically we're at the opera um, in Paris, and uh, there's a phantom who lives in the basement uh, and like haunts the opera house. Christine Daae is a ballerina, um, but has been trained by the phantom to be a beautiful singer. Um, and he's like, "You should make her star on the show." This star Carlotta, she sucks. Um, so she goes on. She's amazing. Uh, her childhood sweetheart Raoul sees her and is like, "Oh my god, I've been in love with her forever." And then, of course, the phantom like kidnaps her, seduces her into going to his lair because he's writing something for her. And then um, he returns her, but she's not quite the same. And then, um, you know, basically uh, they keep trying to make the opera diva the star and the phantom's like no she sucks put christine in it so they do um and then then basically he writes an entire opera for her she stars in it he goes into it to try to kidnap her again uh and then there's a massive battle and she leaves with raul because she's actually in love with him and the phantom disappears into love never dies oh well done that's okay yeah and you even got a reference to the sequel 
the sequel of Nerdist, which I have not seen, have not listened to, and I really should probably, but had never have. I I have seen it and I've listened to it, and I will forever enjoy. Since we all know the theater industry has very snarky nicknames for shows sometimes, and that one always makes me laugh, which is "Paint Never Dries." That's a great one. I and love. That's a good one. I yeah. There's another show that I should not mention that has a great one that I think we've discussed. Um, in terms of nicknames, it also is kind of amazing to see that the considering the success of *Fan of the Opera*, that *Love Never Dies* has never been seen in New York. And yes, it has had a national tour, Australia, I think London too, right? But like, it never came to New York, and that says something. And I don't have not seen the show. I but it does say something that it is a sequel to the most popular musical of all time it has had decent amount of success or at least productions and it's never been seen in New York well I think I have very strong feelings about this because I I think and this is like maybe a teaser to a later conversation but I think that Phantom actually ends in the most perfectly ambiguous way where you can think if you want to that Christine is in love with the phantom and that he was the right person for her and that she's, they can never be together. And the phantom makes the sacrifice so that she can go off and have a normal life and not like live in this lair with him. Um, You can also think that the phantom is a creepy villain and that he's been bested and Raul is her true love. And she's, you know, truth has prevailed and goodness. So the fact that there is a sequel at all for that show that not only that, but goes into like, Hey, remember that time when you were in my lair, this is what really happened. I think is like actually one of the rare sequels that it is at risk of damaging the original, like people's feelings mm-hmm. about the original. So I'm not actually all that surprised that it never made it to New York. Although I totally get it. Cause you'd think that it like, it would be, everyone would at least want to see what it was, even if it wasn't very good. But like, I do feel like, oh, they're playing a little bit of a dangerous game there because I don't think what you want to do is mess with people's feelings about the original Phantom with your with your Phantom 2.0. So that will take us to Why God Why. Why God? Why today? Are we talking about why the show exists? What's the author's point? What is really driving uh, the plot and the characters? So I'm going to be real honest here and say, as I was thinking about this, as we have discussed in other episodes, I think about something that unites all the characters, but it's been a minute since we've done something that has like true, like literary um, history. Like it hasn't been since like West Side Story that we've done something that's based on like legitimately studied classic literature. Um, And even before that, it had been a minute since we'd done something really of that level. So I, I went into like my very like English lit, brain about like what this could be in some ways and there there are so there are so many things that are at play here and I actually think which I don't want to get into where we'll get to with how to solve a problem like Maria but I don't know that there's something that's really uniting all the characters it just is kind of a story that you can read into it what you want I think it's really easy to say that it's about love I don't or unrequited love and like yes that is definitely like part of it but that is not something that's really driving everybody that's driving the main um the main trio and that's certainly the lens through which it's been adapted I'm going to go ahead and say that the thing that unites all the characters is like a need for recognition and a need mm. for attention and like the uh, and like and to obsessive levels and like 
it, it could be, you could say that everybody, like, it is a study on obsession, like, and that's what a lot of people about the original book say, that it's about obsession, the Phantom's obsessed with Christine, Raul's obsessed with Christine, and they both are very messy about that. But I feel like this, like, drive for recognition is really, like, the Phantom wants to be recognized as a human, as a soul, and as a musician. Christine wants to be recognized for more than a ballerina. Raul wants to be recognized as, like, this romantic hero. Carlotta wants to be recognized as a star. The opera, like, the producers want to be recognized as the owners of this theater. Like, and Madame Giri like wants to like be recognized. Like, I, I think she does have this, like, I want the recognition of being powerful, even though I'm like in this. So I do think that there's a fair amount of that at play here. It's also really easy to talk about like control and power when it comes to the show. Like that's also a part of all this. Um, but yeah, I'm going to go with recognition because I just, there's something about that to me that is actually really driving the wants and needs of the the main characters. Meg wants to be recognized as like her daughter, like, you know, and like <laughs> Christine's getting all the attention. You know what I mean? I feel like there is right. actually, that's a thread that is not necessarily talked about, but actually unites all of them. But what about you? What are, what are you thinking is driving this, this boat? Well, I love that. I think that's a really astute and interesting uh, view onto this show. And I, I, I love that. Um, yeah, this one's a little bit tough for me because I feel like there is the show that I see in this show that I wish were more the show that it actually is. Um, and, and we'll talk about that a bit too, but like, I think this show would like to be ultimately the story of a girl growing up and being able to sort of make her own choice for maybe the first time ever. That is kind of what I would like to have in this show. Is that actually what this show is necessarily? I don't, I don't think it is totally. And um, so that is a little bit uh, an issue I have with the show because it's so close. It's so close. I just have some notes. I have some thoughts. Um, Don't we always, our alternative title for this podcast, we have notes. We have notes. (laughs) (laughs) We always have notes. Um, So, so yeah, that, that, I think Christine is sort of at the heart of it. And I I do feel like it is a journey of her growing up um, a little bit. Uh, But yeah, I think, I'm, I don't know. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna hopscotch onto yours and pretend like I had that thought too, because I like it so much. Well, but I I struggle because it's even, I'm kind of like, I'm trying, I'm kind of fitting a, a square and a round hole a little bit. Like it's a little bit, but I just, I, it's more, it's, you can't say that the, that love is really driving the engine of plot. Like it's just not like it, no. it is a romance and it wants to live in this like romanticism and like all of that. It's like, but it also ultimately is like, it's a horror show like it is it's intended to be like visceral in a certain way like it's going for something that's not quite like it's so it's like it's it and I think it does it really I actually think it does it really well but it's not like oh like I think there's a view on this adaptation that's like let's make it a romantic love triangle and that's really the like main thing here and like that's borne out in the research we'll get to but like Beyond that, like you actually do spend yeah. a lot of time with these opera producers and Carlotta oh, wow. and all this so stuff. Much and time like, in the opera. But there there is time spent there. So like at some point yeah. you we we have to, I would say, as creatives and as like the interpreters, like at some point we have to 
where they're spending time matters. It's not just always about like, oh, well, we need some comic relief and we need whatever. Like they're really, you know, spending time with prima donna and all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's really true. I, I do think that it's interesting, this show, because I've been back to it twice. I saw it when I was a kid. Um, and then I went back to it about 15 years ago. And then I just went back to it last year. Um, and what I find fascinating about this show is that your your brain turns it into a slightly different show, I think. Like there's a lot in this show. And I think depending on what you resonate with, there's a lot that you forget. I mean, you know, like I kind of remembered the Phantom as being this sexy, attractive, like, you know, older mentor figure who's like in love with, tragically in love with her. And and then like, I forgot that he's also like a stone cold psychopath who is murdering people because they're not doing his opera. You know, basically, like there there are elements here where it's like, well, yes, but it is a romance. And also he is demanding that they do his weird opera. You know, it's like there's this and this. It's like, is it this? It is sort of. But maybe you forgot that we're spending 20 minutes in this opera. Like whatever it is, it's it's a little bit of like a a Rorschach test. I think you kind of see this the show that you want to see in there, um, which is kind of brilliant. So with that, why don't you take us back to before and tell us about the origins of the Phantom of the Opera? We can never go back to before. Oh, this is a fun one. Um, and I have to say, I knew that the Phantom of the Opera was based on the Gaston LaRue novel, um, but I didn't realize that it was also partially based on some real things that actually happened. I didn't either. Fun. Yeah. There are lots of like actually not to hijack your segment, but there are also a lot of weird parallels between this story and like the Hunchback of Notre Dame, which I just think mm-hmm. is in, both in like how the novel is written, location, and like also it's just, it's really in like movie adaptation. It's very interesting to me, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess there's something to sort of like, you combine Paris, an intrinsically dramatic city with an opera house, which is sort of an intrinsically dramatic piece of architecture and operas, which are intrinsically dramatic. And it's just like all of those, I feel like you've just ticked up a lot of uh, elements that lead to drama. Um, All right, so yes. So Gaston LaRue uh, is the writer of the uh, novel on which this is based, which was written between 1909 and 1910. It was serialized and published in a newspaper in installments. Um, and it was pretty successful. Uh, Gaston LaRue himself had been, it was, it was funny, he was supposed to be a lawyer apparently, but he spent his, his inheritance gambling. Um, and he was a reporter before he started writing these novels. Um, one of the things I thought was really interesting was that he was a drama critic. That was part of what he did. But he also was a courtroom reporter. So I guess he was into crimes and drama, which ended up both of them sort of in this in this story. Um And basically, he had heard some rumors about the building of the Paris Opera House, or the Palais Garnier, as it's called, Um, and he decided to combine them into this ghost story. So I'm just going to tell you a few of these stories that inspired this, because I just think this is so funny and interesting. So one story is that at this opera house, they were finishing an act of an opera, 
And there was a fire in the roof of the opera house that melted through a wire that was holding the counterweight for the chandelier, causing a crash that injured several people and killed one person. Um, so that is a real thing that happened. I did not know that that was based on truth. And actually, it is not true that it was the chandelier that crashed into the house. It was the it was the counterweight itself, but it still did a lot of damage. That was a great tragedy that happened during the building of this. Um, so, huh, who knew that? Um, there is also really a lake underneath the opera house, which I love, um, that was said to be haunted by a quote-unquote faceless man. That was like a rumor about this opera house and the building of this opera house. Um, although in reality, I love this, the only inhabitant of the lake is a single white catfish, who is the opera house staff's unofficial pet now, and also French firefighters who practice swimming in the dark there. So there is nobody actually living under the opera house right now, but you might run into a white catfish and or some French firefighters. Um, but the other story that really inspired this, this uh, novel that LaRue wrote was this legend that there was a ballet dancer named Bois-Maison who fell for a ballerina named Nadine Dorival. I don't know why we know the names of these people, but this was all this, this, this rumor. Um, however, there was a French sergeant whose name is Monsieur Moserier, um, who loved her as well. And he got Bois-Maison out of the picture. Um, and Bois-Maison was so devastated by this that he willed his bones to the opera house in the hopes that he'd stay near his lover even after he died because she was a ballerina and performed on the stage. But um, according to the legend, they honored his wishes and they held onto his bones and they used his skeleton as a prop in uh, this one opera. This has since been debunked, but this was a big rumor at the time that there was this sort of tragic love triangle and this one person who loved this other performer so much that, that he wanted to be a part of the, the operas forever. So these things um, became this story that LaRue wrote about this, this man whose face was, was mangled and his love for this uh, young opera singer and, and a lot of what we, we know in the show. So the original novel was was pretty successful, as I said, um, and it was adapted a lot. It was adapted most famously into a film in 1925, a silent film starring Lon Chaney, um, now considered a great classic. But that is definitely not its only film adaptation. There are so many films. I've just cherry picked a few of the titles just because I think this is kind of a hilarious list. The Phantom of Hollywood, Phantom of the Paradise, Phantom of the Megaplex, Phantom Lover and Phantom of the Mall, Eric's Revenge. So yeah, I'm obsessed. With, I'm obsessed with the fact that his name is Eric. Things I, know. I didn't know. <laughs> it's like the Phantom has a name, and it's Eric with a K. Moving on. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I know. It's, it's like it's just funny because it's like it's almost like Phantom of the Opera. Cody. Like it's such a like normal name too. Um, and interestingly enough, this is not the only musical adaptation of the novel. There are actually three. So in 1976, there was a version by Ken Hill. Um, that eventually went to the West End. And in 1983, and this is kind of a sad story, Maury Yeston and Arthur Copet began an adaptation that unfortunately basically became vastly overshadowed by this Andrew Lloyd Webber version um, that was being written pretty much at the same time. So that is still something that is around. I think Maury Yeston feels very sad that this show that he wrote is never obviously going to have the same fame that Andrew Lloyd Webber's version has. But um, it is really, it is a story that has become a key 
horror story. I mean, it is like, it has so many elements that just lend themselves to um, adaptations, to interesting things, you know, this kind of like brilliant, misunderstood um, exile from society who like unrequited love, you know, it's it, just darkness and haunting and like, it, I don't know, there, there's a lot in there. So it makes total sense that it would become what it has become, which is really just one of those stories that um, keeps keeps on chugging. So with that, Fling, do you want to talk a little bit about how this particular musical version came to be? Yeah, so that brings us to putting it together. Bit by bit, putting it together. Piece by piece, only way to make a work of art. Where we talk about how the show was literally put together. So yeah, as Annika mentioned, it's obviously been adapted in lots of ways. And I think in many ways, I, I think it's pretty uh, universally agreed that this is the premiere adaptation and certainly like elevates the story to a level that it, while it was still like a, you know, a known story, this is definitely has taken over as like the culture text version of the story, but it is an actually quite strong adaptation. It is not like they just lifted the story from the novel and put it into the musical, which I think is always interesting as we talk about this section when we, when we have that. So um, it was, so the first kind of like inspiration for Andrew Lloyd Webber was when um, his soon to be at the time wife, uh, Sarah Brightman was uh, a, a kind of group that was doing this like camp musical version of Fan of the Opera reached out to her to star as Christine. They were kind of looking for a West End kind of, you know, big deal. And Andrew Weber called Cameron McIntosh, uh, who at the time they had just done Cats, as we as we talked about um, last season. And they agreed that it might make a good camp musical, but it just didn't seem to add up for them. And eventually they abandoned the idea. So Andrew Weber goes to work on writing Aspects of Love and this whole Requiem. And there are all these other things that kind of take his creative juices. And as he's wandering around New York one day, uh, he popped into... Uh, the Strand Bookstore, and not the same Strand, like not where the Strand is now, but one of the uptown locations. He says it was on Fifth Avenue, but something else says it was somewhere else. It doesn't really matter. But he pops into the Strand um, and was inspired by um, a copy of the book that he he says he bought for 50 cents. Another thing says he bought for a dollar. Either way, best investment he ever made. Um, and, um, uh, and he, you know, went back to his hotel and kind of started reading it and he was like, yeah, you know, I really want to write a romantic musical. And I think that there's actually a real romance here. So Michael Riedel says that he ran into Hal Prince that night and talked to Hal Prince about the project that night. And Lloyd Webber doesn't tell the same story, but eventually he like runs into Hal Prince who um, he was trying to about this idea and they both are like obsessed with South Pacific. Fun, fun fact. And um, Hal Prince was like, yeah, I, I've always wanted to do a romantic musical and like nobody ever asks me. And Edward was like, funny, you should say that. I kind of want to do one. Uh, how do you think about Fan of the Opera? And um, Hal Prince was like immediately into the idea. So again, Andrew, like Andrew Weber doesn't really talk to anybody about this, but in his mind, he starts to like craft it in his mind as he's like doing these other things, but doesn't tell another soul apparently. And, um, and, and the entire time, like, oh, I'll write this for my now wife, like recent new newlywed, Sarah Brightman. And uh, basically he cobbles together like a first act of the show for his Sidmonton Festival, which we have mentioned and talked about on the show before. Um, and at the time it featured the cast of the Cameron McIntosh and Royal Shakespeare production of Les Mis, 
um, because that was like who they could get to like be in it. So Colm Wilkinson is the first person who ever sang the role of the Phantom in this like presentation. Like, which side note is actually probably better casting than Michael Crawford. I don't, I don't want to be sacrilegious, but she's coming in with a hot take. Hot take. I'm just, you know, when I was re-examining the show, I was like, it's so funny because it feels like the Phantom's voice is such the thing, like the thing that lures Christine, the like, so when you have like someone like Anthony Warlow playing Phantom and it's like someone whose voice is just so extraordinary, you can just, you would see that anybody would just be mesmerized by it, no matter who that person is. Michael Crawford is not possessed of that particular voice. You know, I think we're like used to hearing him on the album, but like, if you just think about like Colm Wilkinson's voice, like oh, I'm going to that lair. I'm it's, following You know, voice. there's something about it. There's a character about his voice that like Michael Crawford's voice isn't quite the same thing. No, it's just, well, it, yeah. I mean, Michael Crawford's, it's a, it's a, it is a, yeah. It's a character voice. It's not necessarily a seductive, beautiful. Oh yeah. No, that's what I meant. That's what I meant. Like there, the char- oh, yeah. I was talking about the character, like Colm Wilkinson's has like a certain kind of tambourine thing that is like, just entrancing in a certain way that like Michael yes. Crawford is not. That's what I was trying to say. No, no, no. Yes. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Michael Crawford is a little bit more, I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a Cornelius Hackle kind of voice doing a Brian Stokes Mitchell kind of voice part. So speak on it, speak on it. Um, Continue. Speak, I was going to say speak on it. Also, if we were Howard Stern or a disc jockey show and I could easily insert sound cues, I would absolutely insert a Todd up here after that take (laughs) or too darn hot all right so anyhow um okay that's a holdover from when we used to have an instagram show in 2020 remember that that was fun remember when everybody was going live on instagram and that was the pandemic wild wild times so um so for this presentation um they contract um uh uh, Mariah Borenson, I think that is Mariah, actually. I think I don't think it's Maria. I might be wrong on that. But um, who is eventually the set designer. And she even designed this presentation for the festival and figured out a way to make the chandelier fall over the audience. Um, immediately, Cameron McIntosh is, like, seeing all the things and is like, yes, yes, yes. Um, but Angela Lloyd Webber actually... Um, and how Prince were not thrilled with the presentation at Simmonton. They really thought it lacked the romance that they wanted. It was still too funny. It was like living in this camp world that they really didn't want it to. Um, and it led them into this direction and focusing on the love triangle of Raul, Christine, and the Phantom for this adaptation. That's really what pushed it. That presentation is what pushed it into that arena. So um, that uh, leads him away from Richard Stilgo, who he had collaborated with on uh, Starlight Express, Annika's secret favorite musical. And... Um, I, that's not really true. We just have talked about it. Um, but, uh, and he had been with the project for a, a long time in this like camp style opera, but he didn't have a ton of musical theater experience. So Android Weber started looking for additional lyric and book support. And he went, um, at one point they were, they talked to Tom Stoppard, which is like wild to think about. Um, but he also that is wild to think about. Isn't that wild? Um, there's wild. a lot of like, there are a lot of ways where this could have gone a very different direction that it would not be the successful show that it is today. And that is one of them, like the Tom Stoppard, like Trevor Nunn route that they like kind of explored and was kind of what Cameron McIntosh it like in some ways, there are lots of things that were very, very weird. So, but Tom Stoppard not ends up not happening. Um, they, uh, uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber reaches out to Alan J. Lerner and is like, Hey, you're like one of my heroes. Like, what if we worked on this together? You know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, uh, Alan J. Lerner was like, 
thank you so much for the request or you know the idea i think this is a good idea but like i can't he dies a few months later which is is kind of sad and is like highlighted in a lot of the um the stories about this um and eventually andrew Lloyd weber um finds Charles Hart, who at the time was a completely unknown musical theater composer and recruited by Andrew Weber after he found him in a musical theater uh, writers competition, which he actually had lost. Um, so he's like this 25 year old kid um, who gets asked to now write the most successful musical of all time. And I will be totally honest and say, I'm not sure of any other credits that Charles Hart has um, beyond Phantom of the Opera, but he and his descendants will never have to work again. So that's, you know, one, one hit wonder of musical theater, I guess. I, although I'm sure he has some other credits and I'm, I'm sorry to this man, I don't know what they are, but um, yeah. So uh, the other interesting kind of like, you know, classic Andrew Lloyd Webber kind of thing, he does actually record the title song with Steve Harley and Sarah Brightman in a, like this fancy music video um, that like rises to number seven on the charts. Cause like Andrew Lloyd Webber just like can't produce something. If like one song doesn't come out beforehand that like validates that it should be a musical, I guess. So, uh, that's a fun little, a fun little thing. Um, but the drama continued behind the scenes because Cameron McIntosh did not want Hal Prince to direct this piece. He insisted that it should be an English director and he wanted Trevor Nunn. Um, Andrew Lloyd Webber, uh, eventually went out and really like, stuck his neck out there and was like, no, I think Trevor Nunn is wrong for this. I know he just did Cats. I know he just did Les Mis, but I think he's going to intellectualize this in a way that it is not meant to be. Hal is the one to do this. Um, and, um, but literally like Hal had gone to the, the opera house, had done all this research, had this like binder of like research was so excited about it and like went to a breakfast with Cameron McIntosh where Cameron McIntosh was like, we don't want you to do the show. And Hal Burns is like, I don't need to eat this breakfast and left and apparently handed, handed his assistant the file and said, don't throw this away. They're going to call back. They're going to call. They're going to call someday. And I was like, honestly, like an, I, a legend move, a legend move. Um, and in fact, they do call and uh, he gets the job and, you know, it becomes the sensation that it is. And I think it is not insignificant that he takes the show where he does. And it's actually in many ways for it being a technical, you know, a huge tech show, as we think in our minds, it's actually not nearly as high tech as we think it, it it's dealing in a lot of, um, a lot of uh, like old theatrical magic that is just not actually that crazy. Um, and that's a lot to do with him and the set designer and their collaboration. I mean, it is, a, it is a really stunningly wonderful production because it really is not out of date when you go to see it. It's, it's so, like, it, he was exactly the right person to do that show. I can't imagine sitting down at a breakfast and being like, no, thank you. Hell no, me. thank you. It's also like Cameron McIntosh, like two true powerhouse like titans of theater and musical theater, certainly like Cameron McIntosh and Hal Prince walk into a breakfast joint. Yeah. And it's like, okay, casual. Um, here's, here's my question from that. Did Cameron McIntosh stay and eat that breakfast by himself? I think like, how did he think that was going to go? That Hal Prince was going to be like, cool. I guess let's have some eggs. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I don't know. And I guess Hal Prince at one point thought Andrew Lloyd Webber also didn't want him on it. And like, Andrew was like, I was horrified to learn of this years later. I absolutely wanted Hal on it the whole time. <laughs> I was like, LOL. So um, 
So the interesting thing, like Andrew Weber did want the show to be closer to the source material than a lot of the other dramatic adaptations had been. Um, and he quickly identified the unmasking of the Phantom as one of the largest problems in adapting it for the stage, because in a movie you can have a close up and it can be dramatic in a way that like you just can't do on stage. And so he wanted to come up with a way to theatricalize the moment. And he decided that if they adapted the plot to include a performance of an opera specifically composed for Christine by the Phantom, they could uh, contrive a situation not only in which the Phantom was unmasked in front of other characters, but also on the stage of his opera house in his own opera in what was supposed to be a night of triumph. And the inspiration for this um, was a line from the original novel that I'm going to read because I just thought this was really interesting. So the quote from the novel is, quote, presently I heard, this is Christine speaking in the novel, quote, presently I heard the sound of the organ and then I began to understand Eric's contemptuous phrase when he spoke about operatic music. What I now heard was utterly different from what had charmed me up to then. His Don Juan triumphant, for I had not a doubt but that he had rushed to his masterpiece to forget the horror of the moment, seemed to me at first one long, uh, awful long, magnificent sob. But little by little, it expressed every emotion, every suffering of which mankind is capable. It intoxicated me. And that really like left off the page for Angela Weber. And he was like, oh, so if I he writes his own opera, I can bring in all these other styles of music and it can be all these things. So I guess moral of that story is like, do your research, read things, things pop off the page to you, follow it. So um, there were, you know, so what's weird really about this show is that, and Andrew Weber's memoir, Unmasked, he has a ton about it, obviously. It's like the, you know, big finale of the book. Um, there's a book that came out in the 80s, like a coffee table book that I'm sure you could probably still buy like at the Majestic Theater. Um, that has a lot about the development of the show, its process and whatnot. But basically the show, once it was like the people were in place, it all kind of fell together. There's not a ton of, I mean, there are changes as things happen in rehearsal and the shaping of masquerade is a, is a big thing that he talks about. Um, but between the, the, the fact that both Hal Prince and Andrew Weber share in their books respectively, between the first preview and, the opening night of the show, not one note of music changed, not one bit of staging changed. The show that had the first preview at Her Majesty's Theater in London in 1985, 86, whatever year it was, is the same show that is still running at the Majestic Theater to this day in New York City, um, which is just wild. It's just a wild thing to think as we talk about a form that is constantly changing, previews, try this, try that, change. They put it in front of an audience and they're like, nope, this is it. This is what we want. And honestly, kudos to them. Yeah. It, it's really an interesting thing. I mean, yeah, I guess it works, it works. And so we planned, I mean, we planned this episode for February for a long time. One, because like Valentine's Day, love, all that stuff. Haha, <laughs> happy Valentine's Day yesterday. Um, but um, at least it's released on the 15th. So your Valentine's, the Valentine's Day special. But also the show was supposed to be closing. This was supposed to be, um, it's kind of, farewell month of performance and uh now it's extended to april and then but did they did they extend again beyond april they said april is the cutoff it's done after april right i think they said april still but like but last, i think there's, not, there's kind of a suspicion that but like that honestly it was like last week it was like the highest grossing show on broadway it's grossing over two million dollars right now because everyone's like gotta see it before it's gone yeah so yeah it might be a ploy. I think everyone's a little bit like, hmm. 
it's anyway it's closing, so it's, eh? it's it's a massive it's a massive hit i mean there's a huge like bidding war about what theater it should go into between the schuberts the niederlanders and Ju jamson at the time it's a whole thing um and that's a chronicled in razzle dazzle by michael riedel there's a lot of history about the show it's obviously like the most the longest running show in broadway history it wins a tony for best musical you know it doesn't get like oh it's flawless reviews but nothing andrew Lloyd Webber does ever really does get that review so i think it's kind of baked into the equation um and yeah yeah it's massive i mean it has a hit a movie that came out now like 20 years ago right um that's i don't kind know of, if we would call that a hit mu- movie it has a movie uh, did i call it, oh i'm sorry did i call it did i call it a hit it, it had a movie <laughs> i'm sorry <laughs> movie. i didn't mean to call it a hit um uh it's a certainly somewhat controversial movie although i don't hate it as much as everybody else does but i watched it a couple years ago and i was like Ew, this is not great it's uh yeah it's it is a film of the symphony opera that is a thing that it is um yeah and Rossum, gerard butler patrick wilson in a terrible fright wig Oh, but also justice for Patrick Wilson. We've said it once, we'll say it again. We love Patrick Wilson here on Know the Show. We're we we're do. Patrick Wilson fans. We are. Come back come back to the Broadway stage, Patrick Wilson. We miss you. Uh and uh I do, I need to get a hand a copy of um him as Billy Bigelow and the national tour of that uh the oh, the Kitner carousel. That's what I need. Amazing. Yeah, you do. Um so yeah, uh, this is where well, you normally throw to Annika for all the deets on, uh, you know, Tonys and whatnot. But I think, you know, everybody kind of yeah, knows what that, that is. It's, it's huge. So um, with yeah. that, Annika, why don't you uh, take us into the words and show us what's inside Music of the Night. What's inside? Everyone wants to know what's inside. So let us talk about the Music of the Night. This is one of the Phantom's big numbers, but this is kind of the first number where we really get to slow down a little bit. Um, So at this point, we've had the prologue, we've gone to the opera, we've spent a surprisingly long time inside Hannibal the Opera. Um, You know, Christine has been put forward as the new diva. Uh, she has sung Think of Me. She has gone backstage. Raul has been like, hey, we can hang out. Christine's like, no, thank you. And Raul kind of ignores that. And then the phantom appears in the mirror and brings her down. Like, all this stuff has happened. Um, he has sung the title song, The Phantom of the Opera, and brought her down to his subterranean lair. And then finally we get to this point where he basically introduces himself um as an actual character really after i mean the phantom of the opera is you know it's it's, he's referring to himself in the the third person basically um we don't really learn anything about him in that number we're just kind of following him as is christine so um this is a still moment um that allows us to meet him and allows Christine to spend a little bit of time with him. Um, and it's, it's kind of a seduction. It's an interesting song because it's, uh, it is sort of a seduction into the world of music more than it is an actual seduction. Um, and it is really the phantom sharing something with Christine and by extension us, um, that makes us really love him because you know i mean i don't know when a when a creepy guy with a mask appears in your mirror and like pulls you through 
down into the depths of this, you know, opera house, that he's kind of presented as a villainous character in that way, very mysterious, very dark. Um, and then instead of getting uh, this kind of powerful, controlling person, uh, what we get is this sort of sweet song about how beautiful it is to be in night, to be in darkness, to be in quiet, um, to listen to the world around you. So, so it's, it's definitely not what we would have expected. And because it's not what we would have expected, we find ourselves so much more drawn to him than I think we would if this were a different kind of song. So it's, it's a very effective thing. Um, and as I'll show you in the lyrics, it's kind of brilliantly written lyric wise, because it's so general that you can kind of keep everything uh, a little bit fuzzy on the actual plot details of, of what is happening here. All right, so let's uh, dive in. I'm going to listen to the original Broadway cast with Michael Crawford, who I have already talked about a little bit. It's not my favorite voice singing this song, but it is the original Phantom, so I feel like we got to go there. So um, as per usual, if you want to listen to the song all the way through, go and listen to it. Come on back. Uh, you have your choice of, I think, a million billion different versions of this. This is a very, very covered song and there have been many many people who have sung this song as the phantom so oh my god do you want ramin caramelou do you want anthony warlow do you want norm lewis do you want hugh panero you got your pick you want gerard butler you probably don't need to hear gerard butler singing this song um as much as he is a wonderful actor and very handsome but um yeah many choices so you can go listen and then come on back and we'll kind of walk through it all right here we go Nighttime sharpens, heightens each sensation. Darkness stirs and wakes imagination. All right, so again, it's so soft and quiet and lovely. We're coming straight from the bombast of this title song. And him, you know, at the end of that song, he's shouting like, sing, sing my angel of music. And she's hitting progressively higher notes. And then it comes out of that kind of like crazy high note um, up to a little bit of orca or uh, organ music that he plays. And then this. So it, in some ways, it's like a little bit, I'm just going to say it, it's a little bit like post-coital. Um, this is something that the song will do a number of times. It kind of like hits these big moments and then goes right into something sort of soft and, and gentler. So it's it's a real feature of this song. And um, again, this isn't scary at all. It's major key. Uh, he's introducing her to this darkness and this quiet, um, which is kind of funny, actually. On a side note, it's not totally dissimilar from My Time of Day from Guys and Dolls. Both of them are men who seem like bad boys uh, surprising their ladies by introducing them tonight in a very kind of new and poetic way uh which you know <laughs> i who would have thought that that would be a thing i would realize in this song analysis that sky masterson and the phantom of the opera have uh something in common but there you go and uh just musically speaking we get this uh, this beautiful thing that andrew Lloyd weber does where in the beginning of this it brings you down you know night time it keeps going down and then goes back up again um, the music is literally bringing you into the depths, but then allowing you to go back and forth, going a little bit higher, going back to that dark, that down place. 
Um, so just as the song is kind of like the Phantom has brought you down to the depths, the song is kind of bringing you into this darkness, but gently. It's going down low, but it's coming back up. It's going down again. It's going back up. It's it's allowing you to kind of familiarize yourself with these lower notes, which I think is kind of a lovely way of paralleling what the song is about with this music. Silently the senses abandon their defenses. So this is something I really love about this song, which is that this is the first verse and it's left unfinished. The Phantom sings silently the senses, abandon their defenses, and then he simply lets her be alone and still with her senses so that she can experience it for herself. There's not a ton of, of like, bombat. The music is not, like, taking over the narrative here. It's still pretty quiet. The, or the orchestrations are pretty still and a little bit subtle and gentle. So it isn't like the music is kind of taking us on the journey in the way that they it will later in, in the song. This is really about, it feels like acclimating ourselves to what it feels like to be quiet and listening. And I just think that's such a gorgeous moment of song structure mirroring content. The Phantom is introducing her to the music of the night. He's telling her that there is beauty in this thing that normally is considered scary and dark. And of course, this is all a parallel for him, um, who is this like creature that lives in this darkness. Uh, but he's letting her and us actually hear that music um, and get to know that it's beautiful, that it's not scary, that it isn't ugly, um, that it is something lovely and different and not what you would hear in the, in the, in the other part of the uh, show or in the other part of the opera house. And think about what a change this is for Christine, too, who has spent the beginning of the show with all this like chaotic stuff happening, um, led around being told what to do, including by the Phantom. Um, Raul's not really listening to her. Nobody's really listening to her. And then the Phantom is letting her uh, discover something for herself, which is kind of the first time we've had anything happen. So it, it really makes us love him because we have sort of expected him to be another person who's trying to control her but in this moment he's not doing that at all he's he's taking a step back he's basically saying like here listen for yourself um and i really just think that is a beautiful thing um and then let's also get this out of the way so this is the phrase this beautiful moment um is the phrase that inspired the plagiarism charge from the puccini estate they sued andrew lloyd weber claiming that he had plagiarized Puccini. Um, and I'm just going to play a little bit of what that sounds like um, with, I'm, I'm not saying anything. I'm just going to, I'm just going to play it and you can hear it. This is from Puccini's 1910 opera called The Girl of the Golden West. And this is what it sounds like. <laughs>
similar, but you know, but it is a very beautiful phrase in both songs. All right, let's go back to Phantom. So we're getting this lovely lyrical imagery about embracing the dark and a tiny touch of insight into the phantom here. Um, the garish light of day, turn away from the garish light of day. And um, we've got cold, unfeeling light. And that second one especially feels like he's talking more about the people in the waking world rather than the actual light. Because, I mean, is light really cold and unfeeling? That just feels a little bit like cold. Light does not have feelings. Um, and that's kind of a brilliant touch because we feel bad for him, even though he hasn't, hasn't really actually said anything about his own life. Um, but it's just a reminder that the people in the other world who of course have like shunned him presumably, or he, he cannot live among them because of his face. Um, also because he murders people, but you know, side note, side note, we're not dealing with that right now. Um, have, have been cruel to him. He has had uh, cold, unfeeling people in the past. And so we just get the tiniest, tiniest little seed planted about what has happened to him. Um, and that makes us care about him a little bit because obviously it is a sad thing to have uh, someone who has been bullied to the degree that we can easily imagine that he has been bullied by the people. I mean, there is, there's a reason he probably lives in the catacombs of this opera house. Um, and now that we're getting this like insight into this beautiful, sensitive person, um, that is an, the really nice touch in the lyrics to make us feel that way. Close your eyes and surrender to your darkest dreams. Put your thoughts on the life in you before. So then we get into the bridge and this really feels like the music is taking us on a journey. The orchestration has this beautiful counterpoint that feels like it's bringing you along. Um, just this kind of gentle swelling and, and traveling that this music is doing. Um, while the lyrics are saying surrender to your darkest dream and purge all thoughts of the life you knew before. Um, Phantom doesn't have to be quiet for Christine to listen to the music anymore. Now she's listening and the music feels like it's an accomplice trying to get her to give up her other life and stay here. It's, it's bringing her along. You want to travel along this music that's, that's accompanying what he is singing. So um, it's a really, again, a lovely moment of the music um, illustrating what Phantom is, is saying and helping him without actually um, just saying what he is saying. It is, this is a beautifully orchestrated song because the music is, is really allowed to have a life of its own. Um, and this is a really good example. It's, it's like his sidekick almost here in this moment. Um, and then, uh, we get this. Close your eyes, let your spirit start to soar. 
Um, so we get that big high note on spirit starts to soar, which is exactly the lyric you want on that high note. The note is soaring, the spirit is soaring. Um, a plus for the music illustrating what he is, what the lyrics are saying there. Um, and after that, just as the song is gentle and soft, after Christine's big high note in the previous song, we get a much smaller and gentler um, live as you've never lived before with almost no accompaniment at all, like a little bit of piano. Um, the Phantom needs her to hear this. He wants her to hear this in the clear, right? Not be distracted by the music, not listening to the music of the night. It's just totally quiet. Um, but he needs her to understand that this is a different life. If you've let your spirit soar, uh, you will be living better. You'll be kind of accessing something different. And he also, I think, you know, the idea is that live as you've never lived before. You know, I, this song is a little bit vague in terms of what the Phantom actually wants from Christine here. Um, but we do kind of get the sense that he would like her to live in this lair with him and and be his muse as he writes this music. Um, so I think there's a little bit of that too. Like, you know, she's going to turn away from her life up there and live a different life, but it's going to be a better life, right? But again, uh, kind of very brilliantly vague because the more specific I think the Phantom gets, the, the creepier it is about what he actually wants. Um, so so it's kind of brilliant that it's all like just a little bit in the realm of like uh, self-helpy, a tiny bit. Softly, deathly, music shall surround you. Feel it, hear it, closing in around. Open up your mind, let your fantasies unwind In this darkness which you know you cannot find The darkness of the music of the So, first of all, I just love how Michael Crawford says fantasies. He has this like little jauntiness. Um, always interesting. Um, all right, but so in the first part of this section, we get this beautiful orchestration here of the music swirling around her and building. And of course, he's he's saying that the music is closing in around you. Let this music close in around you. And, and this this orchestration is allowing the music to do that. It literally feels like it's wrapping around her in this beautiful way. Um, and then in the lyrics, we're getting some fantasies. We're getting the slightly dark detail that she knows she cannot fight it, but it doesn't feel threatening. The song really masterfully walks that line between seduction and something maybe a scooch darker. Again, like we don't quite know what he's actually asking her here. Um, but two things keep us from being too weirded out. One is that the lyrics are kept in that general world in the poetry um, that it's hard to hot, assign real intentions behind it, them. And the second is that the Phantom is so often introducing her to something beautiful and allowing her to experience it, which is lovely and appreciated. He's treating her like she has her own mind and agency. Um, he's really saying like, you know, do this and you will discover that you, this is a life you've never lived before. You know, let free your soul, basically, like free yourself, teach yourself this thing. Um, and then you will, you will be where you want to be and, and you'll have this other life. And it's, it's nice. I mean, it doesn't feel like, um, he's controlling her. 
uh, and it, it's funny because the song in its staging, she is kind of like being swayed by him and like kind of collapsing against his shoulder and like there it does the whole thing walks a very fine line about like what is actually happening here is it only that the music is sort of intoxicating her is he like putting her in a trance um is there how nefarious is what's happening um and I think it's very uh, elegantly kept uh, up in the air a little bit. get it again there too you know um this big swelling musical journey i mean that music is just so glorious just filling you up um take and you want to go with it you just want to go on the magical journey that these instruments are leading you on um you want to leave behind the other world whatever it is and then we get this lyric let your soul take you where you long to be right again it's all coming from inside of her it's you know listen to this let your let your heart be where it wants to be um and then again the contrast between this big bombastic high note um this time on take you where you long to be which you know not quite as effective um as a as a high note uh but whatever he has something he needs to say so that's how it's going to scan this time um and then we get this small uh only then can you belong to me in the clear and again something that could seem very very deeply creepy i mean we we're talking about ownership can you belong to me but because it's so uh vulnerably vulnerably placed um with no musical help there's no power uh, given to this line, except for just Phantom's voice, pretty much a cappella, and it's it's a small phrase, um, so it doesn't feel like he's saying, you know, you are going to belong to me. Um, it sounds like a plea, you know. It sounds a little bit like only if you do this can can you be with me a little bit. Um, so it's tempering that the creepiness of that uh, line in a really beautiful way and that's something the song does again and again and again like who is the phantom what is he doing here um what does he want from her we really don't know and yet even when there are things that make us think like belong to me um it's delivered with such sweetness and um gentleness and kind of vulnerability that we we can't quite just think wow this guy is a creepy creep show um and that is very important because if we think that the phantom is a creepy creep show then th this sh whole show kind of loses its engine there has to be something that really draws draws christine to the phantom um and draws us to him too to make the end of it feel like uh potentially a tragedy and we have to and we're getting a lot of why we care about him right here 
Floating, falling, sweet intoxication. Touch me, trust me, savor each sensation. Let the dream begin, let your darker side Again, we get the music stepping in as an illustration of everything he's been saying. Um, you know, the, the music is going big now. It's, it's aiding in this seduction, right? This music started, this song started so small and gentle. And then it was sort of like, you know, allowing her to listen to what the, the night sounded like. And now it's just full bore. This music is glorious. It's really stepping in. It's swelling. It's just taking over as this beautiful, beautiful thing. So this is where the song has built to, to the point where the music is just kind of like gloriously overwhelming um, to convince her that this is the most beautiful place you could possibly be. And, you know, it's making a good argument for it. That is some very be beautiful, beautiful music. Um, and we also get a little tiny bit more concrete, which is that he's writing the music of the night and she is his muse. Great. Okay, cool. That it gives us a little bit more solid plot details. Okay, so after that big swelling bombastic music, once again, we get the kind of smaller moment after the big build. Um, so these last lines are delivered uh, after Christine is asleep um, and has been tucked onto his little boat bed. Um, she is asleep because she has been startled by the life-size doll the Phantom has of her wearing a wedding dress. Uh, so, uh, once again, we have that fine line of, how creepy is this? That is the creepiest detail. Um, but however, let's just say she's asleep for not as creepy reasons as that. Um, she is not hearing this. Uh, this part of the song is just the phantom completely alone, ostensibly. 
um, it is the most vulnerable part that the phantom can't even say to her while she's awake that he needs her that uh, he would love her to come help her have, help him make this music um, this is not something he's been able to articulate to her before he's he's asked her to listen to the music of the night um, you know, said, then can you belong to me? But this is when he really, it really feels like the most vulnerable part of him um, that that really does need her to, to be a part of this for him. Um, so that's kind of an interesting thing and really helps us, again, feel for him, even though he does have a sexed Oliver wearing a wedding dress, which is so creepy. I just really wish they could just cut that from the show. I hate it, but um, whatever. Anyway, so so we get this beautiful little vulnerable moment um, after he sort of sweetly tucked her in and, and taken care of her for a moment. And the song ends on this on this note that he has with these kind of amen chords, church chords building under his note. Um, so it kind of feels like there's something holy in what he has shared in this song. And we get it because the way that he has talked about music um, is so beautiful uh, that this is really not about him seducing Christine to be, you know, his lover or his partner. He's really tried to convince her to understand what music is. And that is something that we really respond to because it's, it's a beautiful, vulnerable, gorgeous thing. This is, this is a person who is driven by this music that he creates more than any other thing, even this woman that he has fallen in love with. So um, we feel for him in a real true way. And that is so valuable in this show. And that will bring us to one of our favorite segments. How do you solve a problem like Maria? How do you solve a problem like Maria? where we talk about some of the issues with Phantom of the Opera, both internally and externally. So I'm gonna, I don't have, and um, we, we obviously talked about this a little bit beforehand, so we know the general topics, um, but I I feel like the topic with Phantom of the Opera really like, it, it should be like, is this actually a good show? Is it actually? And and we have alluded to this earlier, and this is like obviously like our have note we have note segment and whatnot. Uh, my issue with it, and I and I will grant that like I went back and watched the 25th anniversary concert because that's basically the full show, and I like followed along with the script and yada yada yada. And so it's a filmed you know version of it. I wasn't doing a read listen, but it's it's an incredibly broad show. It's just broad. And like, there are, are interesting mysteries and things about it. I agree with you that there are complexities in all of the characters that I think are interesting. There are certainly things to investigate and think about in like a table work perspective and whatnot. The show though, doesn't really go into any of that. It's kind of all like how you choose to approach it. And I, I, like I said, I, I'm a bit of a sucker for the show. Like I really do like it. I, I think I, you know, here's my hot take of the episode. I think it is unquestionably Andrew Lloyd Webber's best piece. Um, I I would I would say unquestionable. That's the hot take part of that. Yeah. You know, I, I think it really is like his strongest score in many ways. I think the story is very interesting. I think the staging as it has been rendered in the original production that we've never really seen beyond 
is really fantastic. And, you know, I, there's a reason it's run for almost 40 years on Broadway and it is an international sensation. That is not like, I, I'm, I guess, a populist in the sense that like, yeah, it is, we are an art form that is about pleasing people and people like it and they like it a lot. And, and it's not as, you know, when we talk about like cats being an international sensation, you can kind of meet cats wherever it's at, as you very astutely pointed out, that like it being a dance show and kind of being its thing. This is a plot driven show. And yet internationally, it, it has had huge success. And yet, like, it's not lame is that like the score is just going to like magically musically take you in a place that you're going to be in tears by the end, because like it just that material is so emotional. And yet I do get weirdly emotionally tied up in the show, despite it being so broad and all the things like where it ends, I think to your point earlier, like the ambiguity of it, and you can kind of read into it, whatever you want. And like, does it necessarily make sense that the show ends with Meg holding the phantom mask in a very beautiful tableau and that little like spotlight? Does it intellectually make sense? Absolutely not. What does that say about anything? Like, what does that say about anything? Like, what? And yet, it's beautiful. And I go, oh, wow. Mm." Yeah. And I, like, touch my chest and I'm like, "Mm, wow, wow. And, like, so what, what is that? Like, how do you, is, it's, it's, it's so plot driven and yet. It's like what? I, so I, 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 I it's no plot. There's no plot. It's 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 uh, so it really to me it is a remarkable piece of musical theater, and and I mean that not in a pejorative way. I think it is really great, but is it actually good, Annika? Like, what do you think? You know, I mean, I agree with you that I I think this is probably Andrew Lloyd Webber's. I I also have a great soft spot for the for the show. I, I love the score. I mean, fan of the opera, that title song is like one of the greatest title songs of all for, I mean, you, it's just irresistible. Like there's a lot that I really love about this. Um, you know, I have to say having seen it relatively recently, I think it is one of the best productions of a show because I think one of the brilliant things about this production And I think one of the reasons that this particular production has run for so long is that this production manages to sort of make you not ask the questions that you might otherwise ask um, about the actual book of the show, um, which has some really weird elements. Like, like when I, I was surprised when I, when I saw it, again 15 years ago as an adult I was like this show 100% holds up I love this when I saw it last year I was like this show does not hold up as well as I thought it did <laughs> like, I think my my kind of like dramaturgical brain was in a different place but um and I was really like oh my god tag me in coach like I have so many specific things where I'm like oh I wish I could just like get in there a little bit and and you know just tweak some stuff um because there is some stuff that's just feels weird uh, about it. So is the show good? Yes, I think it has to be to have the longevity that it has had. It it is very successful as an entertainment. I will not at, deny that at all. Um, 100%. You're totally right. It feels very emotional at the end of that show. You feel so sad for him. Um there's the songs are so lush there's it's just lush the whole thing is lush and romantic and gothic and like 
It's really successful. Um, do I think the script is necessarily, the script and score are a great, like, example of wonderful musical theater writing? In some ways, no. We spend a lot of time at that opera. A lot of time. Do we spend any time with Christine and Raul actually interacting with each other as human beings? No. Almost none. Almost none. And and to me, I was watching it and I was like, God, it's funny. I remember the show as being really different. I remember it being about Christine being torn between these two people, the kind of like handsome guy who's the right choice for her, who she knew as a child, you know, and this kind of like dark sexy seductive mysterious person um that sees a, a brilliance in her that she doesn't isn't wasn't capable of seeing for herself is that in the show not really not honestly. really like not, not really. really like is it in the production a little bit yeah because like when you when he first appears behind that mirror it's a stunning moment and you've heard this voice and you're just like yes i'm going with this person um but then, you know, she gets down to his lair and he has a set, he has a life-size wedding dress sex doll of her. What the hell? You're like, oh my God. And then interesting, I've heard this thing that's true is like, I was also very surprised because like the Phantom does this weird, like they do these weird things with their hands and he's like kind of like moving his, his head around like he's an animal. Um, and I was like, what is that? That is such a strange thing. I subsequently heard that that is part of this character. They are all directed to be as though the Phantom has watched silent films. And so he's like interacting with the world like he is a silent film. So I'm like, okay, so scratch that image that I had in my head of this like seductive um, genius and insert this kind of like weird, awkward, like, you know, guy who can't even like hug her. Like, Like there's parts of it where I'm just like, help me show help me show to to feel that this is a woman toward between these two differing people like give me something with her and Raul where I can see that they have a connection give me something with her and the phantom where I can see that they have a connection and it's a different connection please please address the deep weirdness of the fact that she goes to her father's tomb in the second act to basically say, hey, father, what am I supposed to do? I, I miss you so much, which is like, don't get me started about, about women roles and, and their, their missing fathers as a whole thing. Um, and then like she sees the phantom who she thinks is the ghost of her father. Like the, the, there is a weird thing in this show that nobody has ever quite like, I think, figured out, which is sort of like, does Christine think that the phantom is the ghost of her father? Or does she think that the phantom is the a ghost that was sent by her father? And either way, isn't it a little bit weird that she also has this kind of like seductive draw to him if she thinks that either of these things are true? I feel like the show kind of wants that, wants all three of these things to be true at different times. Like after wishing you were somehow here again like he fully emerges from that tomb and it looks like she thinks that that might be her dad her dead dad right i mean i mean that's i think that's what's i mean it's that's said but yeah like right. it is heavily heavily if right. not said it's heavily heavily implied right so so that makes it very weird because then you're like okay well if she was like drawn to him because she's having this like sexual awakening by this man with the seductive voice and then she also thinks it's her dead father 
what? That is uh, all sorts of weird, you know? So th there's certain things in there that I'm like, I wish, I wish we could smooth out some of these questions. Um, and, and, you know, I, we don't need to spend this much time in the opera. We, we just don't, nobody's that, that interested in that except for, you know, I don't know, but like, you know, like there is time that could be better spent with some of this character development. Um, and you really don't have that much character development at all for a lot of these characters who are very central. Um, so, so, but does it work? Yeah, it all totally works. You know, do, do I have these notes because I, I am a dramaturg and I have a dramaturgical brain. And so it's hard for me not to see this stuff. Yeah, totally. Like, is everyone else sitting in that theater thinking like, wait, do you think that's the ghost of your dead father? Or do you think that that's a seductive thing? Or like, why are you interested in Raul? When did you fall in love with Raul? Have you seen him like twice since the show started? Like, what's going on there? You know, like, I don't think that most people are thinking that. And I think that's a credit to the production because, because that is a real thing. I think there are directors and there are people out there who can do... Um, productions that cause you to not think about these questions and and I will be very interested when this production closes when somebody else can do a production of Phantom of the Opera to see if suddenly the reaction is wait what there's a lot of the show that doesn't really make sense because I have a feeling that will be what happens um because I it's think there are big questions in this script it's interesting because I think I think yeah I as you raise all those points, it to me, there's a very interesting parallel having done Evita. And I don't know if you, um, we talked about doing Evita on the show. We have not done it yet. But having done it, 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 it is a show that contradicts itself over and over and over again. And it paints Ava as like Santa Ava, perfect. How could anyone say that she's not wonderful? And also like she's this Machiavellian, awful dictator like you know person and I, I say that only because it's also Andrew Lloyd Webber and Hal Prince and it is a collaboration that like does yeah. it, that like it it works because like you know it has this like big bombastic kind of thing and and whatever but there are like certain things about it that don't totally make sense and I think in the case of both of the shows you know, they're basically sung through. What I was going to say is like the music, there is like something about, and they talk about this in the development, like the cascading element of the music that it just keeps going and it just keeps going and it kind of puts you under the spell. And so you're just not really, like there's no time to stop. Like in some ways, if they stopped and did have a book scene, it would ruin the show. And they'd be like, yeah. cut it. Like, because it's not it, like, actually in some ways to investigate it on that level, I think is going to make things fall apart in a certain way, right? Like, yeah. because, like, yeah, we don't really know, like, again, there's no, like, both of these men are obsessed with her in different ways. And she's just like, I'm not really sure. And like, there yeah. is, like you say, there is this interesting kind of, it, and how Prince, I think, used to call his uh the at the end of the show after she leaves and the phantom kind of like screams and has this like moment he used to call it the oedipus cry and so it's interesting to me that you bring up this thing because like yeah it is kind of dealing in these very ancient greek like uh, you know it's yeah. not the oedipus cry is interesting because to me i would also say i'm oh kevin hurst is gonna be so mad at me my high school theater teacher is gonna be so mad at me but um in uh, antigone the whoever the dad actually is and antigone and like the oh my god when at the end spoiler alert he's like like all of his children are like dead um around him it's the final part of the oedipus cycle but like um 
but like his daughters are like both dead right and he like has this cry a why is me like the, the big cry it feels to me feels like that it's like this like this all of this awful thing has just happened and like i'm left in this wreckage and like what am i to do anyway so it's just interesting to me that he brought up oedipus and then you're bringing up this interesting like daddy complex kind of thing right that like it's yeah it is playing in and yet like yeah you're right but she is into it but she's not but is she like she goes back and she gives him the ring and andrew weber talks about like the one of the big things of the novel is like i guess the epilogue or the very end they go back and like they find the phantom's you know skeleton um skeleton and the ring is still on his finger that she Mm -hmm. gave him that 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 he gave her but in the novel she doesn't give it back to him and so they wanted to include in the adaptation like her giving it back to him to like answer that question like at least to like connect that dot that is never connected in the novel of like her giving it back which is again a really interesting thing choice that as you rightly say like what does that mean is she actually in love with the phantom is she saying actually my heart is with you and it's not with raul i don't i'm inclined to believe that it's not like i don't i i think i guess i guess that's the next i guess the question like do you where do you fall on that do you think her heart is actually with the phantom or do you think her heart is actually with raul or does she know I mean, it's hard for me to say that it, it's with either because, again, like, that's why I need, I just need, like, what I would call, like, dramatic anchors dropped a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, because like, there's not, ev- there's not evidence in the text. There's not, it's, it is, it, yeah. it, you rightly say it's a Rorschach test. It's where it's you, a at. It's, bit, it's a Rorschach test. Right. Like, like, for me, I'm like, uh, normally, I, you know, I don't know. Like, it, it feels like there's no moment of I I don't know what really draws her to Raul except for he's handsome and doesn't have a living sex doll of her and in his creepy underground lair from which he murders people you know um part of me is like Christine like I don't know go live your life you know like leave Paris for a while go find yourself in Italy or something you've got a great voice you're a big star now (laughs) like you can do better than both of these men well and to and to Bring it back to like, so I obviously said that recognition is a huge part of the show and, and wanting that recognition, whatever. The other like thing that I kind of tagged on to the end is like the control of it. Like Christine has lived her entire life being controlled by somebody else. She really yeah. has no agency throughout the entire thing. Like yeah. she is like in the background of the ballet, Madame Giri puts her forward as like, no, no, she yeah. can sing it, monsieur. Like, and then like you know and then she like has this life okay cool now she's star and then yeah the phantom like she just has no she constantly is like not right. in control of her situation Super until literally passive. until the very end that she like she makes a choice at the very end to show the phantom kindness yeah. humanity like kisses him hugs him and then he lets raul go like you know all that stuff like that's kind of the only choice like it's the only thing she does that's active she's an incredibly passive hero so like in the way that we think about like these rules of musical theater that we talk about like hairspray as being a really great example right of like the structure of musicals the fan of the opera kind of throws all of that away like it is not an active hero the you know like it's it's it defies so much of what we consider to be the good rules 
and the good yes. standards of musical theater. And yet here it is, it's working, it it's running for 40 know, years and it works. I know. But it's also kind of frustrating because it's like, you know, I mean, it, like if you put aside the phantom that we know and love, like, you know, yes, it is. And that's what I mean about, like, I want it to be the story of this this woman who grows up and, like, grows into herself and, like, decides which future she wants for herself. And I think, actually, the team over at Phantom has has restaged some moments to to help this along. I remember seeing something about, like, when she's doing the Don Juan opera and it becomes evident that the Phantom is on stage with her. They changed it so that instead of like trying to run off the stage and having like Andre and Fairmont be like, no, 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 stay on. She's like, she's the one who's she, like, no, I can handle she this. She handles it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, So, I mean, I think they've made some smart choices towards that direction, but um, yeah. But in I some just, ways, I it only wish. makes it all the more confusing. In some ways, like it only, well, it just perplexes everything. It makes it all the more complicated and like, what? I know. But also like it's some things you're just like, okay, so if I said to you that, you know, there's this young girl and she has no parents anymore and like she's in the corps de ballet and like they push her to the front. She's going to, you know, this opera of ghost and this, all of this plot. And then like, you're going to have this kind of like, not 11 o'clock number, but 11-ish ish yes like, and you're like okay great i know what that number is going to be it's kind of going to be like a what am i doing like how, what can, how can i reconcile this like who do i want to be and like what am i gonna and instead it's a song about how she misses her dead father a character we've never seen you know like it's it, it is not the show that i think today you would write like i think now that song wishing you were somehow here again would be something active because it's like the last thing we care about in that moment is Christine being like, Oh, shucks, dad, I miss you. <laughs> you know, like, but also, it's a beautiful, I mean, it's also a gorgeous song. I mean, like, it's, it's a, gorgeous, it's a song, gorgeous song, but like, activate it slightly, have it be a little bit like, I, I don't know what to choose. Like, come back and make these decisions for me. I know I have to choose something, I don't know what to do. You know, like you could mm -hmm. easily tweak that song so it feels more like that, like sort of like a last gasp of like, I wish I could be a child again and have someone who could just like make these decisions for me, but I can't. So you I guess know, what you're saying. Instead of what, what it is, which is so passive. Because what I would what I would ask truly in that case is like, do you, because uh, in some ways I want to believe that it does kind of exist in the text. It's just not in the direction and or the staging that exists. Like mm -hmm. there is a world I think where you could take some of that language and with a point of view shift is it again, kind of implied like, yeah, I'm wishing you were here again because I, I want guidance. You were once my one companion. You were all that mattered. Like, you know, doesn't guide and guardian. Like there are things about it that like, it's, I'm not saying it's, I'm not saying it's like perfect. It's certainly not as like, plainly stated as i think you're suggesting it should be and i i'm not saying you're wrong but on some level it is kind of there you just have to like lift it and elevate it but it's definitely not lifted and elevated i mean but i don't know if you look at those lyrics of that song it's i mean it is a beautiful song i totally agree but like you know it's all about the father you yeah. know passing bells and sculpted angels cold and monumental seem for you the wrong companions you were warm and gentle like too many years fighting back tears why can't the past just die like what who who cares yeah you know true. like first of all what are you what are you talking about with why can't the past just die i don't know what that means and also like what so we're getting a portrait of how lovely her father was <laughs> like who cares i don't know who her father is you have a ghost in the catacombs <laughs> of the opera house who has this life-size sex doll of you 
in a wedding dress and also can you like make an aristocrat who wants to marry you like you are now an opera singer this is what you're singing about what are you I mean, singing about this listen family trauma goes deep in the words of um in the words of jamie lee curtis trauma 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 <laughs> generational <laughs> trauma <laughs> like you know but i i mean it's an interesting because like it does kind of exist all like this entire conversation exists like exterior to the show right because yes, like yeah it's just it's not like it it's such yeah. an interesting complex thing because it all, is all questions about what happens in it but it's not yeah. like there are things in it that are like oh how do you make that well, work like it just yeah. i don't know it's it's such an know. odd thing well which i think it brings you back to you it brings me back to what you said about like it's kind of broad i mean like you know, I think you can easily watch the show and it gives you enough that you can fill in these details without being like, you're not confused necessarily. There's just like, they've given you enough that you can fill it in yourself, which actually is a, is uh, the sign of a good show. Well, certainly making an audience feel smart is yeah. always a, is always a plus, you know? Yeah. And that will bring us to another of our favorite segments, our favorite things. These are a few of my favorite things. Where we talk about some of our favorite things about Fan of the Opera. So, Annika, what is your favorite song in the never-ending score of Phantom of the Opera? I'm saying never-ending because it's sung through. What is your favorite song? What's your what's your what's your pullout? I with a with a nod to the title song, which I deeply, deeply love. Um my favorite song in this score is and always has been, I can't fully explain it, Prima Donna. I love it. I just love it. Wow. Wasn't expecting that considering you're like, we spend way too much time at the opera. I was expecting you to be like, oh, I love that song. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's so silly and I, I really like catchy and fun. I don't know. I just always have loved that song. I, I respect it. It's a fun, I mean, like, I, I think there's a lot of the score that is like Android Weber just kind of showing off his more like classic, you know, his classic kind of tendencies or like interests, which I think is like, he doesn't really, it's so interesting because he lives in such a pop rock world. And there is so much of this score that is like, has a rock guitar, like, ding, 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 ding. Like, it does have that like 80s, like rock kind of synth about it. And yet, I also feel like it is such a classic. I mean, obviously she's like singing like high, you know, C's and all these things. It's like, it's a, it lives in such an interesting, like weird intersection. So I yeah. think it's interesting you bring that up because yeah, it's great. What about you? What's your favorite song? You know, you'd think I'd be more prepared. I, again, I love the title song. I also, I love Past the Point of No Return. I think it's really dark and messy and I'm like so into it. Like I, I've always really liked that song. Yeah, I've always really liked it. Wow, we surprise each other with our choices today. It's just it's something about that like seductive element. Like I'm into it. It's so dark and I don't know, I'm into it. Yeah, there, Emmy Rossum has a has a way that she sings one of the lines in the, in the uh, soundtrack to the movie that is so silly. It's like thrust or something, and it's just like oh yeah, she does. Yes, yeah, she does. What is that? Yeah, yeah, she totally does. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, so who's your favorite character in Phantom of the Opera? Um, this this is, might be strange. I kind of love Andre and Fermat. They're sort of like the the Muppets of <laughs> this show. 
<laughs> dying that your ti- your take is like too much time at the opera. All my favorite things, the, All opera. the opera characters. <laughs> no, when I say too much time at the opera, I don't mean like in the opera house. I mean literally in Hannibal the opera. Like you see so much of that particular opera, which is at best filler and a setup for like Christine's introduction. But like when that's when that show starts, like you are spending, you see long sequences of that opera as you see a long sequence of Don Juan. Like that's what yeah. I mean. Like I love spending time in the opera house. I feel great about that. I Got don't. It. I, besides, like, hey, the opera is happening. I don't need to actually know anything that's happening in Hannibal the opera. Got it. I understand. I hear what you're yeah. saying. Um, but yeah, Andre and Fermat. I I just think they're hoots i enjoy oh totally great muppet characters good comic relief like i totally agree i enjoy them a lot i like their little bit at the opening of masquerade too actually it's a fun little yes yeah andre what a splendid party it's fun i mean the like notes as the motif too are like is also i i enjoy i mean it's also like i think in in such a show that's that's heavy and sexy and dark and like horror like the, the comedy relief is always fun you know yes it gives you a moment to breathe in this whole thing totally uh, what about you what's your favorite character so again maybe surprising you i think madame giri is so <gasps> interesting i was gonna go with madame giri too that was my other choice i think she's so interesting i think she's like one of the more fascinating characters in like the entire canada musical theater she does like the movie certainly like goes and gives you like visuals for her backstory which i think is interesting but like there are also bits in the script that she says she intimates like i it's just the fact that she knows so much and yet says so little and like yeah how is it that she knows like keep the keep your hand yeah at the level like she knows more that she's not letting on about that we don't ever get and i think it's really fascinating yeah i totally agree i think she's really an interesting character too and again, like, I think that's another one where it's like, are there a lot of questions around that? Yes. Does the show answer them? No. Do you ask those questions when you're watching the show? Not really, actually. It's like it masterfully just steers you away from needing to know more about these things that are sort of like. See, I do question things about her, though, because I'm like, is she like, what's like, she's got a pass for the Phantom. Does she have a thing for the Phantom? Did they have a thing at one point? Are they like in cahoots? She, mm, there's something going on. Yeah, but it's not like an active, it doesn't feel like there's a plot hole. It feels like a sort of intriguing, like. Oh yes, totally. Thing, yes. You know what I mean? Yes. So it's like, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. I think the production like masterfully kind of makes you like not be like, wait, I don't get it, you know? Totally. So what's your favorite miscellaneous thing about Fan of the Opera? Um, I will give it all to um, the beginning of the show, um, the auction. Speak um, on it. Speak on yeah, it. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, this is brilliant. I think this is part of the success of the whole show. Framing device, old, old Raul at an auction with all these like beats, bits of the past. You get one thing, if you know the story, it's such a great like Easter egg too, because like, it's like a poster from the Hannibal opera that you're about to see. It's like that, you know, like all of these things kind of are gifts to the people who already know the show, but also very intriguing. Um, 
I just think it's a really brilliant way to frame the show, especially since if you started it with the Dippy Opera, you'd be like, what show am I watching? But now we know what show we're watching. It's full of love and it's full of like drama. I mean, I love the the total cheese ballness of the fact that this the chandelier is lot lot six six six. six. <laughs> oh my god. Oh my god. I think about it every time. Every time so, every time. Every time. It's, it's almost <laughs> too much, but it's like just enough. <laughs> totally so agree. Silly. I totally agree. <laughs> yeah. So I think like mwah, chef's kiss for the brilliance of a framing device in in general. Um, and a very smart framing device to set us in exactly the right place to be to see this show. So I was gonna say props I, to the framing device. I totally agree because like framing devices can really be either it's like strong yes or strong no for me on framing devices when directors put in framing devices annoys me, but I think this is a really great framing device. Yeah. It's a great little prologue. I think it's great. Because if we just started mm -hmm. at the opera, I think I'd be like it would it would lack the mystery. It would lack the intrigue. It would lack it would lack that. Yeah. You know what I mean? It well, would just and you be would, and you would seriously be confused because you'd be like, What well, seriously, why am I spending so much time in this? Right. Opera? Right. You know. And truly it like sets the romance up. Like clearly he there's yeah. um, something, there's some demons in him he's gotta solve. It also makes it all the more like odd that they did choose to do a sequel that then explores even more of it. Like I mean it, it's, it's an interesting it's weird. just an interesting, you yeah. know, an interesting mess. An interesting yeah. mess. And it and it gives actually a little flavor to Raul. It's kind of a boring character because like, you know, then you know from the beginning that he like loved christy you know you get a little sense of like this history she's kind of got like the monkey box and um i don't know it, it adds a little bit of of some nice stuff that we don't really get that much of in the in the regular part so yeah brilliant what about you what's your favorite miscellaneous so i'm gonna go with uh, the end of act one, I'm going to, I'm going to do the, I uh, like the end of act one and the transition really out of all I ask of you, which I do think is a lovely song. Um, and Me too. Uh, it's a lovely, you know, it soars in the right way and it's really lovely. But when the phantom is like revealed as behind the big like thing at the top of the proscenium and he's watched the entire thing and he sings his little, his little reprise of um the, that his reprise of all i ask of you um yeah. and i get chills thinking about it and like um the all i asked of you and then dun, 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 dun. like just the the musicality of it leaving the chandelier crash like yes obviously an iconic moment of theater and all the things but musically speaking what like is the counterpoint of where that like the shooting off out of the opening and the overture that then goes there that then is like called back to at the end of the act with the chandelier crashing that is going to be like the musicality of it is going to be my miscellaneous favorite thing because i just think it's the transition from all i ask of you to bah, 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 da, 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 i think it's so great it's it's yeah. thrilling it, what a way to send you into an intermission like i it's like emotionally crushing i feel like yeah, he's just watched this woman that, like, yeah, he's creepy and messed up and all the things, but, like, who he clearly loves and adores, and, like, you're just, it's, like, yeah, it's strong Cyrano vibes, like, I'm I'm here for it. Yeah, although I always do think of the actor who plays the Phantom in that little angel thing, like, just having a snack, sitting down in there and having a snack. Like, you gotta, 
you gotta all throughout that other song just prepping for his moment and that will bring us to our penultimate segment corner of the sky gotta find my corner of the sky where we talk about the show's place in the musical theater canon so obviously it's the most the longest running broadway show of all time it will hold that title for at least another 12 years after it closes, provided The Lion King holds on for 12 more years. And I don't think there's any reason to think that The Lion King won't hold on for 12 more years. So, you know, whether or not it's how long it stays in that position. But obviously it is the the most successful of those 80s invasion shows in terms of staying on Broadway and the Cameron Mackintosh of it all and the chandelier. And I, I think it's hard to state kind of how big a thing Phantom of the Opera was, um, especially just like in the world of like touring Broadway, like it made touring Broadway a whole industry. And that's not super talked about, I think, but like places had to like, you know, re rig their entire buildings so that the chandelier could hang and then fall. And like, that's one of those things that like, because people, it had a hype about it that is very similar to the Hamilton hype and the things that like, you got to see Phantom of the Opera. It just had this kind of thing about it that, you know, I think is kind of the pinnacle of the Cameron Macintosh like um, success, right? Like it is, it is kind of the, the embodiment of all that and the iconography of the mask. And you can't really separate Phantom of the Opera from Broadway. Anytime SNL is going to spoof Broadway, like Phantom of the Opera is going to come up because it is the standard bearer. And like, and Andrew Lloyd Webber, who is like the weirdest musical theater composer, as we've talked about before, he's so weird. He's doing all the weird things. It's his most traditional outing and his most successful. And you can't take that away from it. Like, but, you know, beyond, I, I guess, the obvious things, Annika, what do you think is his corner of the sky? I mean, I just keep going back to its like epic lushness, you know? I just feel like it's unmatched for being the kind of show it is, you know, this sort of like romantic, even though, as we've talked about, the romance of it is actually kind of weird, but like romantic with a capital R and and big and these luscious costumes and, you know, 200 and however many candles. And like, I think part of the reason that it is it has lasted to such a degree is because it is epic in many, 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 many ways. And I, I feel like um, that is actually a little bit rare um, in shows. I mean, I think we talked about Little Night Music, like these big kind of romantic, luscious shows are not all that common. Um you know, I think Great Comet is like the closest thing we have to a contemporary one. Well, it's um, interesting, it's interesting you bring that up because I was thinking about the same thing. Like we think yeah. about musical theater as this like heightened romantic thing. And like sure in the golden age, like you've got you've got a lot of it. But like it's something that we I, I, I was having a hard time. I was like, we really have like gone away from that. And I don't know that like we're itching, you know, there's so much about like Andrew Weber and Hal Prince being like, I think people want a romantic show. Like let's give them a romantic show. And I'm like, you know, maybe that's actually the genre that like everyone kind of feels like we want escapism song and dance right now. And they're trying to figure that out. And nobody, you know, that, that conversation, but like, 
yeah, like maybe the notebook is about to like take off because it's just a big old romance. Like, yeah. you know, I don't know. I it's interesting. Although, I think you're, it's a really interesting point. Yeah. yeah, although it's it's not just that it's a romance because like I feel like Bridges of Madison County is like a beautiful sure, luscious romance, totally. but but I also like it's not quite the same where it's like. You know, I love I love a historical drama. I love a, a period drama because I love seeing these beautiful costumes and seeing these beautiful sets. And like, you know, there is something so aesthetic about the show in addition to being the romance. And I think that's a big part of it too. In the same way that kind of Great Comet was that too. It's like a feast for the eyes yes, in addition totally. to being a feast yes. for the heart and a feast for the ears. It's just this show, whether or not you have like, issues with the sex doll in the basement and whatever is like it is a feast and i think that's sometimes what you want just like you know take my money and give me something that i can just feast on in this way it is it is luscious so i think that's kind of what i what i would say more than anything else well that wraps it up for our deep dive into the fan of the opera but before we go, Annika needs to give us a clue about what comes next. What comes next? So Annika, what is our clue for the next show we'll be getting to know? When this show opened off-Broadway, the artist that inspired it had to miss the opening night. She did make a comic strip about it. A, fi a very fitting clue for the next show we'll be putting in the spotlight and getting to know. Yes, indeed. Until next time. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone.